As we get ready to get into this, we've been out of the book of John for a couple of weeks doing Celebrate Generosity. So I just wanted to walk through essentially where we are up to this point. Now, I'm going to do this very, very quickly, but just to give you that, that high-level understanding of why the book of John has been so important to us as a church. Uh, John ends the book. John chapter 20, verse 31, he ends the book with this idea that I write these things so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if you're ever reading through the Bible and you're like, wow, this feels really biased, John is telling you 100% total bias. I am writing this with a very specific intentional purpose that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And John will go on to say later in his other books that we're writing these things so that you believe because we saw it and we believe. I can't deny the things that I saw and so I have to tell you about these things. So we've stepped into this series in the book of John with the explicit goal of belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. We want that for everybody that will, that will even come glancing through here. We have people that, that in their travels land at Anthem for a Sunday, and we would love that in one Sunday in the book of John, belief would light up inside us. And for those of you that make Anthem your home, that this is a part of your regular rhythm, that the more you dig into the life of Jesus, the more belief takes over your heart, your life, your behavior, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so John takes us on a journey through a bit of the life of Christ. It's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if you're familiar with the Bible, four Gospels, all biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all told from different perspectives and written in different time periods, John being the latest. John lived to be the oldest of all the apostles, and he's writing this late in life looking back, and it's almost like he's reflecting on the things that he saw and learned as he was with Jesus like, I don't know, if you've ever sat down with a war vet that tells you about World War II, it's one of those kind of moments where they're looking back on the experiences, remembering the impact, and they can tell you those stories like they happened yesterday, and that is John reflecting on the life of Jesus. But he also looks at it with a little bit less of like a timeline. He's not writing to give you the, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. He's actually weaving a storyline. I wanna show you the things that Jesus taught and did so that you'll believe. And as Jesus goes through this, there are some things that he says that causes people to believe. He says, I am the light of the world, or is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink, or I am the bread of life. And people hear these teachings and it sparks something in them. And that may be some of your experiences. Somebody taught you something that Jesus said and it lit up faith in you. You said, yes, yes, I believe that that is Jesus. And there were other times where Jesus did something. There was a time that he, he spat in the dirt and he took mud and he put it on a blind man's eyes and told him to go wash in a pool. And this man who had been blind from birth had sight. It's that, that famous line, I once was blind, but now I see, comes from this man who Jesus healed of blindness. His, his world was totally transformed. 
Everybody had to wrestle with this thing that Jesus did. Or there was this time where the, the crowd, numbering close to 15,000 people, had been following Jesus, and Jesus saw them and knew they were hungry. And so he takes this, you know, we joke about it being a Lunchable, these, uh, these couple of fish and loaves of bread, and he breaks it and he multiplies it. And 15,000 people were fed with one boy's lunch. And then... He goes and collects baskets full, sends his disciples out to go and collect baskets full of food that were left over when all was said and done. You can start to see why, even if Jesus' teaching was hard for some people to wrap their head around, they're watching these things happen, and they have to wrestle with the things that Jesus did. Normal people don't do those things. Those kinds of things only happen when God the author and creator of all things is standing behind them and making them happen. That's when those things happen. And so if that, this man is doing those things, people have to wrestle with, well, is he doing them in God's name? And so there's this stuff going on where people have to really, really wrestle with, is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? And that's ultimately what it comes down to in the book of John is people wrestling through that. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? And it's what we have to wrestle with even today. You are still presented with the question, is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? And that word Messiah, if you don't know that word, uh, that is the, the Hebrew word that's the same word as the Greek word Christos. So whenever you hear Jesus Christ, it's not his last name, you're hearing Jesus Christos, Jesus Messiah, and both of those words, when you trace them all the way back to their origin, mean anointed one. The one that God had anointed to solve the problem of sin in the world. The Old Testament talks about it over and over and over. And Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. So that's the story of John up to where we're at now. We're about to begin the last week of Jesus's life. We're... It might be, you look at John, you're like, okay, we're in chapter 10. There's like way more chapters. It's because the lion's share of the book of John is dedicated to the final week of Jesus's life. And actually, I'll put a quick pause and recommend something. Uh, between this week and next week, I have an assignment for you to read John chapter 11. Uh, next week, my dad will be teaching. I'll be in Denver. Uh, Kristen and I are going to Denver to be with our church there. Uh, my dad will be teaching John chapter 11, the entire chapter. It's a long one. It's all about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Spoiler alert. Uh, but I want you to read the chapter ahead of time. Get those verses in your heart, in your head, because as he teaches through it, you can imagine with the 50-some verses of that chapter, it won't go into deep explanation of each verse, but you'll want the story in your head so that you can start to process through that. Okay, so let's read through the text. This is a, this is a wild passage. One of my favorite stand-up comedians, a guy named Brian Regan, talks about uh, people claiming 10 on the pain scale. And there's this great line, this great line. Thank you, thank you, yes. He uses the phrase, who had the audacity? Who had the audacity to put 10? Anytime I think of audacious, I think of Brian Regan saying, who had the audacity? This is the most audacious claim that Jesus makes when he says, I and the Father are one, as we read through this. When you hit that line, you need to know it is the most outrageous, audacious thing that Jesus has ever said. It's hard to see it in the mix, but you'll see it as we go through it and even see their responses to it. So with that, 
John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you are being a man. You being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed him there. All right, Jesus, would you give us insight, knowledge, wisdom to hear and understand? Uh, Lord, I pray that, um, that all that needs to be heard today would be heard by each individual person here. We love you. We thank you for opening our eyes. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to talk about is Jesus, uh, well, actually the very first thing is Jesus celebrating Hanukkah. Uh, for those of you guys that grew up lighting the menorah or continue to celebrate Hanukkah, Jesus was right there along with you. It was a huge part of Israel's history, celebrating this immense rescue from uh, the attacks of the enemy. And Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. the hammer, there still needs to be movies made about this guy, uh, he, he just was a huge part of the operation to keep Israel from uh, the, the clutches of the Greeks. It's a great story. So they were celebrating that at the temple. And Jesus is walking around and the crowd runs to him and they wanna ask questions about him. And there's this, you can tell there's this brewing suspense, this brewing question mark in people. Now this is year three of Jesus's life and ministry. It's pretty much time for him to go to the cross and that will largely start next week. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's the beginning of the end for, of his life on earth. And so Jesus will, will do that. And this is about the last time that he spends before those minutes really engaging people and giving them this teaching. And so they ask him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Now this is an interesting thing for them to say because Jesus has done some pretty 
amazing things. He's said things so, again, huge, that previously people have tried to arrest him or stone him. So it's not like he's never said anything that made them question him. He's been questioned before. But they just, they just haven't quite gotten it yet. And that's the first thing that Jesus deals with, is the people that just haven't quite gotten it yet. He says, you do not believe me because you are not of my flock. Now, there's sort of a, uh, I don't know, circular logic here. You believe him, therefore you're in the flock, but you don't believe him because you're not in the flock. And so you sort of kind of wrestle with this, and even... For a lot of us, we've, we've wondered, what's that point of belief actually like? How do I go from being not a follower of Jesus to all of a sudden just being a follower of Jesus? What all is taking place? Why do some people struggle to believe even as they're hearing the gospel? This wasn't just a, a Jewish problem or a first century problem. Actually, it, it really does continue. Paul talks to the Corinthian church about this, and many of these people were Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, he says this. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. All right, so Paul's bringing this picture to a church that's years down the line. Many of them are not Jewish. And he tells them, we're the aroma of Christ. So when we come to you and we preach the gospel... There's a, a scent that comes along with that. And this is what he says about that scent. He says, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Essentially, what, what Paul's saying is, look, the aroma of Christ, people who embody the message of Jesus, who are bringing the gospel, it's going to go to some people and to people that are being saved. And I, I love there's so many theological questions right there to those who are being saved. People that are being stirred up by the Spirit of God to respond in faith. That aroma of Christ is life. But to people that are perishing, to people that are rejecting the gospel, anytime the gospel is preached, it's death. It's the scent of death. They don't, they don't want it. They run away from it. I oftentimes will talk to people about this and just say, have you ever had those, those moments I was talking with uh, the church plant down in South Pasadena, Steadfast Church that we're working with. I just, I asked the question, have you ever had one of those moments where you are speaking to somebody about Jesus and you don't feel like you're saying a single thing right? You're stumbling your way through the entire thing and at the end you feel utterly defeated and like you completely failed the Lord and these people, they keep coming back to you for more. And they have more questions about Jesus. And they want to know more about your faith. And they just keep pursuing you. I asked that question and this girl, she was like, that is my exact life. I am the worst at telling people about Jesus. Every time I do it, I feel like nothing is coming out right. And I'm actually steering them away from Jesus. But there have been a few of them that just keep coming back and asking more questions. And I don't understand it. I feel like I should be driving them away, but they keep coming back. That's the aroma of Christ. And the reality is, to some people, you can give the most eloquent message you've ever given, the best gospel presentation you've ever given. You can pour out your heart, and some people, it doesn't matter. They're just rejecting it, rejecting the message of the gospel. And so Jesus is telling these people, back in John chapter 10, 
that they can't hear him because they don't believe him. The message is not making sense to them. It doesn't matter. He could tell them plainly right here. They could say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he could say, yes. And they might just be like, ah, no. And that's the reality. And so Jesus goes a different direction. Jesus goes the direction of pointing them to the things that he's done. He says, you don't believe me. You may not believe the things that I'm teaching, but if you look at the things that I've done, well, you have to actually acknowledge that, that those are pretty substantial. And so we'll get into that, the teaching versus the doing, in just a few minutes. But I want to break down where Jesus goes right away. So if you go back to verse 26, he says, you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And that's just a, a great picture, by the way, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, somebody that hears Jesus's voice and obeys. It's not just about a cognitive head knowledge that says, sure, Jesus was God, but that there's actually this embodying belief where we start to follow Jesus with our lives. Our pattern of life starts to pursue him, and we become like him in that pursuit of him. So he says that in verse 27, and then Verse 28, he says this, and we're going to camp here for a little bit. He says, I give them, talking about his sheep that follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says four things, four significant things about the state of people that believe in Jesus. This is where we're going to land for just a, a little bit. We're talking about hope and eternal security. Eternal security. And the reason that we will camp on this is because it directly impacts the way that we live our lives today. See, belief in Jesus and eternal life isn't like just that when everything's said and done, I'm all taken care of. There's actually more to the story than that. It affects the way that we do our life today to understand this doctrine, this, this belief in eternal security. So let's just say you're one of Jesus' sheep. This is how Jesus describes you. I give them eternal life. That's the first thing, eternal life. Now, eternity is hard for any of us to grasp because we have a definitive beginning point, and up to this moment, none of us have experienced our end yet on a biological level. We only have our lifespan that informs our worldview. Some of us can remember our childhood really well, some of us less well, but we, none of us really remember our actual birth. Maybe we just kind of remember, I don't know, three, four, five, six years old is when our memories really start to kick in. But we just have this limited view of our lives. And so eternity can sometimes feel pretty detaching. It's like, what happens after life? It's, it's hard to even conceive of that. We can look around the world and we can see people that are a little bit older than us, a little bit younger than us, a lot older than us, a lot younger than us. We see people that are, that are dying. We've experienced death in our families and with our friends and in our communities. We've seen the end of life. But even still, all we have to go off of for eternity is the word of God. It's just, that's it. That's all we have to go off of. And so eternal life can be a little bit of a, a distancer for some. 
But here's kind of what I want to communicate to you about Jesus' view of eternal life. Jesus says this. He says, uh, back when we were talking about the bread of life, if anyone uh, eats my flesh, it talks about this. He says, he shall never die. You will never die. So whatever Jesus' view of, of life and death is, he's not talking about this, this physical body, the lungs that breathe, the heart that beats, the brain that thinks or stirs, or I don't know what the brain does while we're all you know, just kind of alive. Whatever. Synapses, firing. There you go. That's what the brain does. It's not just that. Jesus is seeing things way beyond a biological level. And he says, look, if you believe in me, you will never die. And he's saying that, and people are dying around him. Next week, we'll deal firsthand with physical death in the midst of Jesus' teaching about eternal life. It's something that, that really needs to be wrestled with, but part of being a follower of Jesus and actually hearing his teaching and putting it into practice in our life is adopting a different view of life and death than the one that is limited to a biological lifespan. It's part of a life of faith. It's understanding that the day I gave my life to Jesus, eternity belongs to me. I will never die. And so whatever Jesus says goes, meaning I'm gonna trust his view of life even more than my view of life. If you look back, even on the Old Testament, it says his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. He sees overall the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega. If you don't know Greek, that's A and Z in the Greek alphabet. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I hold the keys to death and Hades, Jesus says in Revelation chapter one. That picture of Jesus being over everything, front to back, beginning to end, Overall and through all and in all means that when he says you will never die, we start off, you have to reorient what death actually is. Okay? So that's the first thing. I give them eternal life. Second thing, they will never perish. They will never perish. We don't really use the word perish anymore like this. Uh, most of us aren't villains in a Disney movie. We're not evil people. We're not threatening that people would perish if they don't do our will. It's kind of a, it's an ominous word that, that doesn't really have a lot of play outside of the Bible. But it's this picture of eternity without God. Eternity separated from what we were made for, a malfunctioning eternity. An eternity of difficulty and strife and pain and hardship. It's described in the scriptures as weeping and gnashing of teeth. This picture of, of hell is very real in the Bible. It has this idea of separation, eternal separation from our creator and our created purpose. And it's described in the Bible as perishing. The opposite of life. See, Jesus contrasts eternal life with perishing. Last week he talked about life abundant. 
There's something about this eternal life that's not just eternal survival. That sounds kind of awful. It actually has more to do with eternal thriving. Eternal, the ideal for all eternity. And when Jesus describes the opposite, he says that his sheep will never perish. And there's this sense in that where he's saying, look, I have my sheep. I have them. They are not going to experience the end that would be described as perishing. It's not theirs. So it's a promise that for his sheep, they will never perish. Then he goes on and he keeps digging into this. He just keeps pressing even deeper into this thought. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is a statement, a profound statement that Jesus makes where he says, look, I've got my sheep in my hand and it's done. It is finished. You belong to me and nobody can take you away from me. You are mine. These are statements of eternal security. We'll see why in just a minute. Then goes one layer deeper. He says, my father who has given them to me. So everybody there would have known he's talking about Yahweh right now. My father who has given them to me. He's talking about God, the creator of the universe. Elohim for the Jews. They, they know him. They've experienced him. They've worshiped him. They know God. And Jesus says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And there's, in that moment, there would be this maybe murmuring of agreement. Yes, we agree. Nobody can snatch anybody out of the father's hand. He is all powerful. Jesus says four things to just try and, I don't know, you picture that nail. Any of you hit a nail in on the first try? Can you do that? Some of you are a skilled car. Eric, you do this for a living, that's not fair. All right. The rest of us, it usually takes a few hammers to, to get that nail in, and then a few to kind of pull it back straight, and then a few more to try and get it in, and then a really satisfactory angled head to just, and then you just pound it down nine times to try and get the metal flat. That's most of us, Eric. All right. So, that's what Jesus is doing with this teaching. Wham, 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 just trying to get it in the heads of everybody there. You will never die. Eternity is yours for those that hear my voice and follow me. And then he gives the statement that explains why he has the authority to say what he just said. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. I want you to kind of process just for a minute uh, what it would be like to, I don't know, grow up with somebody for 30 years. You know them. You've seen them around. You played soccer with them. You know the family business. You've heard the rumors about the illegitimate birth. Like, you, you, you know this guy. He's got dirty toenails, probably a little bit of a hillbilly accent. Like the things about Jesus are totally human. 100% completely human. He wakes up in the morning. He goes to bed at night. He eats. He drinks. He walks around. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. He sweats. He stinks. He is Jesus, and he is fully human. You're standing there in the temple. The house of God. 
the residing place of the presence of the Holy of Holies for as long as God has had his presence in the temple. It's just such a, a, a juxtaposition of, of their faith. And Jesus is saying, you know the God of the universe, the creator of all things, whose presence would rest on the Ark of the Covenant, who appeared at Mount Sinai, who made Moses' face shine, who split the Red Sea for Israel to walk through on dry ground, who delivered Daniel out of the lion's den by closing those mouths, who stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. That's me. You can kind of imagine why when Jesus says those words, I call it a hundred Jews. I don't know, the, Solomon, the colonnade of Solomon, it's not massive, but it's not tiny either. Maybe 100, 200 people are there. All of them start going for rocks. Now, just to, to point out a couple of things about them going for rocks. First of all, stoning was an absolutely brutal way to die. I don't know what picture you have in your head if everybody goes to just kind of pick up, you know, whatever rock they can find that's like this, like what you would skip at a, at a river or a lake or that kind of thing. They, they were picking up like, like boulder-sized rocks, things that would do serious damage. And the, the punishment of stoning, it was designed to be a community. This is a very strange thing. It's very far, very foreign from anything we've ever experienced, but it was a community effort to render justice. It wasn't any one person, there wasn't an executioner that would drop a blade or, or do a single rifle shot or anything like that. It was the entire community was responsible for maintaining justice and that's where stoning would come from. And so everybody's involved and they all go to grab stones because what Jesus just did was an offense not against any one person, but against God himself. And so here's the wild thing, is that if Jesus is not God, what the Jews did in that moment was absolutely proper, legal, appropriate, even necessary. To go and grab for a stone is what you do when somebody stands there and says, you know the creator of the universe? You're looking at him. That would be considered blasphemy and needs to be punished by death according to Old Testament law death by stoning, the community of the people responsible for maintaining the holy name of Yahweh. So they were right to do what they were about to do. Now this is an interesting thing. Everybody starts to go and grab stones to put Jesus to death and he doesn't run. Jesus doesn't go anywhere. He stands right there while they're grabbing stones. And this is what he says to them. Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? This is some pretty confident, uh, uh, it's a pretty confident demonstration of Jesus. One to 200 people picking up stones to throw at you because you just blasphemed the name of Yahweh. And you stand in front of all of them and just say, okay, I've done a lot of good stuff. For which one are you stoning? What's going on here? And they respond to him. 
They say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man made yourself God. There was a brief little blip in history in the 90s where there were a group of people that were trying to claim that they were Christians and that the Bible never says that Jesus was God. It's mostly gone away. But in case any of you held on to some remnant of the belief that Jesus never claimed to be God, it should evaporate when we read John 10. 100%, without a doubt, there's not a doubt in anybody's mind that's in that temple, and there's not a doubt in Jesus' mind that he is Yahweh in the flesh. He is God, the creator of the universe, and he declares so. And then he asks them, why are you going to stone If you're curious about that next section, there's big raging debate about Psalm 82, and Jesus speaks to that. I'm not, actually not going to go into it because it would take about half an hour to explain all of it. There are lots of good writings about it that you can take a look at if you need to. But just to, to kind of circle back down to verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. This is the instruction of Jesus. While they have stones in their hand, he says, look, if you are, if you're, if you're not believing what I'm saying to you, if you don't believe the works that I'm doing, go ahead, throw the rocks. Yes, blasphemy is what just happened. I just did everything you're not supposed to do, so if you don't believe me, okay, I get it. But then he says this. He says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So I just, I want you to kind of circle back to the things that Jesus is saying and why that matters to us. First of all, Jesus has said, everybody who is his sheep, they have eternal life. They'll never perish. They'll not be snatched out of his hand or the Father's hand. It's to, just determined that you have eternal life. And then the reason that he has the authority to say that, I and the Father are one. Everything that I've done shows that I am God in the flesh. And you need to wrestle with this. Has what I have done rendered me God or not God? And that's the question. John's not afraid to pose that question at all. And all of us should wrestle with that. Has God proven him, sorry, has Jesus proven himself to be God or not? If the answer is no, you'll walk away. Paul will say something later. Look, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, walk away. We are of all people most to be pitied. This is not the God story if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. It's 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is the God story, if this is Jesus, Yahweh, in the flesh, well, then it changes a lot of things. And this is where we're going to close our time. It changes a lot of things. It does change how we live our lives today. Okay, one of the things that we would believe about being a follower of Jesus is that you are placed here with purpose. Okay, if uh, you think about it, the world is kind of a, a difficult place to live. If you were to survey this group, uh, most people... In terms of quality of life, it's, it's sort of teetering on the struggle side, not on the epic side, just generally speaking. I'm not going to try and make some percentage rendering or something like that. Generally speaking, people struggle with life. 
And there's part of the thinking that's like, okay, if heaven is so epic, why is it that when we give our lives to Jesus, we're not just instantly taken straight into eternity where we get to be in the presence of God for all time with him? Perfect, complete, done, finished. There's no more struggle, no more internal struggle, no more external struggle. I just get to be with Jesus forever. It's done and finished. Why is that not the storyline? And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. We'll get to that a little later in John. That idea of being sent is the reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are still here. You're sent into the world. It's pretty explicit and it's pretty exclusive. The things that we do in this life are for the purpose of people knowing Jesus. We become Christians, and that word, if it just kind of loses some of its meaning, it, it means little Christ. We live in the image of Jesus. We, we testify to the word of God, and we live in such a way that when people meet us, well, they actually, they, they meet Jesus. And they have to respond, do I believe, do I not believe? That's why we're still here. If we walk through this life, there are a couple of things that need to sink in. Number one, you have eternal life. You have to process through what does that mean for how I live today and how I live tomorrow. If Jesus has said you will never die, then you walk through this life with a different kind of perspective. Your fear matrix goes down exponentially. Because the idea of dying, and Paul will say this, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like when I look at the physicality of life and death, it's a win-win situation. Most of us don't hold that doctrine so closely that we would view that life is a win and death is a win. We would go one way or the other. For some of us, life is a win and death is taking the L. For others, actually life is kind of difficult and death feels like a win. And I know that sounds pretty morbid, but that view is increasing in our culture. It's part of why suicide and depression and these things are growing is because life actually feels kind of not really the point and death feels like a way out. But again, if we believe this about God, the sentness of the individual follower of Jesus into the world, then it gives us purpose in life and when the time comes, purpose in death. Why as followers of Jesus would we not rush the death part? Because Jesus has us here for a reason. That's why Paul will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he's saying, look, I know how good it's going to be to be with the Lord for eternity. But he has me here. And so until that day, he's going to strengthen me for what's happening right now. How many of you just like, show of hands, feel like you could use a little strength for today? Just a quick show of hands. Feel like you need the strengthening of the Lord for the things that he's asking you to do today. He does that. He strengthens you for today to handle the things that are in front of you today because he has you here 
for today. So if you believe that Jesus has given you eternal life, then it changes your decision-making matrix for today. You walk through this life differently. Okay, now let's go into the, they will never perish. This is a, a hard thing for a lot of us. We don't talk about hell a lot in our modern culture. It got real big in like the 18 and 1900s. People loved preaching on hell. It was the big, it was the fear-based invitation to follow Jesus. Well, you don't want hell, do you? So follow Jesus. And I think rightfully so, the pendulum has swung pretty far away from that to, to look at the glory and the goodness of Jesus and to be invited into that. The, the dangerous part of that is that when that pendulum swings, many people have forgotten the entire concept of hell and that life apart from God is an eternal separation from our created purpose. An eternal separation from our loving Father. An eternal separation from the only one in the entire universe who fully knows us, everything about us, and will still say to us, and I love you. We are fully known and fully loved by God. And to not experience salvation by Jesus separates us at the point of our biological death separates us from God. And so there's a, there's an urgency to your sentness. You're actually not here for you. Though growth and sanctification are a huge part of our life together here, community is an essential aspect of our life here. It's how we actually make it through the difficulties of this life is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the community of the saints that binds together. But if you don't believe in hell, then there's no reason to tell people about Jesus. If you don't believe that if people don't respond in faith to Jesus, they will be separated from their creator for all eternity, well then what, what is the sentence? To live a, a nice and pleasant life, to survive until your physical death and then to be with Jesus for all eternity. And so Jesus identifies, I give my sheep life, I'll never perish. They'll never snatch, be snatched out of my hand. And this has to do with the protection of his sheep that Jesus provides. He actually guards against the enemy. Who snatches out of Jesus' hands? Well, the enemy tries, and Jesus is saying, never. No, you're mine. That cosmic battle of Satan trying to draw you away from Jesus, when you believe in him, when you're one of his sheep, you will never be snatched out of his hand, period. And in case you're wondering, that's the Father's hand also. God has you. And for those of you guys that pick up your kids from Anthem Kids Camp, if God is for us, who can stand, who can stand against us? Yes. For me, who can stand, who can stand against me? It's in my head all week. This is why we sing, by the way. It gets in our heads and we just can't stop singing truth about Jesus. If God is for us, in all honesty, 
And I won't go to this place just to acknowledge that there are a lot of us that are feeling like the footing right now is shaken and we're, we're, we're wondering, do we need to go somewhere else? Can I stand here? I'm talking physically in this state, in California, against the difficulty of being here. Can I put up with all the resistance and all the difficulty and all the frustration? Can I do it? And one of the things that needs to be factored in, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who? You have to answer that question. Who can stand against us? You gotta be able to say no one to that. Thank you. We're gonna respond in worship. But I, I hope one of the goals of this message was confidence. I just I wanted to inject confidence into our church family. That's why I started with that whole audacity thing. It's such an audacious thing to believe in Jesus and to actually hold to the things that he teaches. But this is what it looks like to hold to eternal life, to know that it's true, and to then start to live as though it is real. It means that if God is for us, who can stand against us? Nobody can. I want to pray for us, and I would love for our worship, our time of response to just be an opportunity for us to declare the things of God. We do this in a few ways. There are a couple of declarative things that we do. One is singing. Is this the song we're gonna sing? We get to sing in Christ alone. In Christ alone is a, a, a song of declaration. It's where we declare about, we find our hope. And so that's one of the ways that we declare Jesus, Messiah. Son of God. The second one is communion. Communion is not, it's not a, a ritualistic thing. It's not something that we do every week just because we're Christians and we're supposed to be ritualistic. That's not, that's not the point at all. It's every single week we center our lives, our worship, our understanding of the scriptures on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so the, the cracker represents his body, the cup represents his blood, and we partake in the body and the blood of Christ to declare it is finished. All that needed to be done to save me has been done, and now I walk in that salvation. I walk in the finished work of Jesus. We also declare Jesus Christ, Messiah, Yahweh, through prayer. We have prayer teams, but we, we like to say this. Every single one of you that's a follower of Jesus is anointed as a part of our prayer team. You belong on the prayer team because you have the presence of God. And you can pray. But for those of you right now that are just needing to declare the truth of God, our prayer team is ready to just, just to speak the life of God into you, to pray for you, to bless you in the spirit. And we give offering. We encourage you to give and give generously. Love, celebrate generosity. It's our all the time thing. So why don't we stand together and let's respond in worship. Jesus, would you hear these praises and would you be glorified in our words. We love you so much. To your name we pray. Amen.